The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome LaDonna Redmond. She is a senior program associate for food and justice at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. She was formerly a food and society policy fellow and was a community activist in Chicago where she looked at the lack of good quality food in her own community. LaDonna, welcome. Thank you. I have to ask you, what got you into this work? Wow. I got into this work basically because my son developed food allergies at a very early age. He was about six months old when we became aware of his sensitivities to food. And after quite a bit of research, we found out that he was allergic to shellfish, peanuts, eggs, and all dairy products. Hmm. That's a lot for a young mom to have to sort through. It was. It was quite harrowing when you find out that, one, your son has food allergies. And, you know, being a mom, one of the things that you want to do to show your love for your baby is to make sure that they're well fed. It's one of the things that you're taught to do and I think we do instinctively. But then to realize that feeding him well looks very different than what I had been taught to do with food was one set of realizations that I wasn't prepared for as a new mother. And then the other one was that I didn't know a whole lot about food from the from the very beginning, even though I had been eating food, of course, all my life. I didn't know what it meant to eat food of a certain variety or food that was healthy for him. So I, I really began to stumble through the realization that I wasn't quite as smart about my food and food choices as I thought it was. So the doctor gives you this diagnosis and then sets you out into the world, and then you've got to make different food choices in your community. And how difficult was that for you? Well, at first, I I didn't realize how difficult it was. I was very used to, I guess, being single. I had gotten married, and it was just me and my husband, and then the baby came. And so we just pretty much got up and went wherever we wanted to go. But, of course, when you have a child, you know, you're a little bit more homebound. And right. With my son being ill, it just wasn't as easy to just kind of pop up and just go places. And so I um, started to look for this food, and I was going outside of my neighborhood to do it. And, and at, at great, um, not so much expense but in terms of money, but at great expense in terms of time. So it would take, you know, hours to just go to the store for a weekly shopping trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, that some people it might take uh, an hour or so and they come back. and you know. But for me, it took you know two, three hours of going to different stores in different parts of the city of Chicago to just find the kind of food that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it, it occurred to me one day, I called my sister, and my, uh, my brother-in-law, her husband, answered the phone. I asked him where she was, and he said, oh, she ran to the grocery store. She'll be back in 10 minutes. <laughs> And I'm like, 10 minutes? It doesn't, (laughs) 
it doesn't t- it takes me 10 minutes just to get you know halfway there i'm nowhere near right. the grocery store in 10 minutes and that got me to thinking well why can't i shop 10 minutes from my house and why haven't i been shopping 10 minutes from from my house that's when i realized that i didn't have the access to the healthiest food products in my neighborhood i have a I believe it's a YouTube video of you giving a talk where you describe the kinds of products that you have easy access to in your neighborhood in Chicago. And I think I can list them off. Let's see, they were, it was malt liquor, guns and ammunition, and I believe tobacco products. But what you I probably said something about illegal drugs. Yes, I believe that was on the list too. But what yeah. you couldn't find was an organic tomato unless you grew it yourself. And to me, you just summed it up so beautifully. And I like to tell that story because so often we blame the victims, right, for making the wrong food choices. If you're not eating well, it's your own fault. And really, when we look at the environments in which we live, they really mostly are not conducive to making good choices. And it's true across, I think, across environments. It's not, we talk about people who have limited resources because we can but one's access to food in one community, you know, once the, if that if we want to call that sustainable access, and someone else's access isn't existent, it doesn't create a food system for either one that's sustainable. So we can't have pieces of a food system that's sustainable and then other pieces aren't. It doesn't really quite work that way. And uh, once we begin to realize that our entire food system is in jeopardy then we'll begin to understand that we are all victims. There isn't just one set of victims in this because you haven't made the right choice. We all have been victimized by a food system that's kind of gone astray. I agree with you, LaDonna. You know, I have to ask you about your experience working with the Chicago Public Schools because the schools are a tough nut to crack. They have a lot of constraints, finance being one of them, feeding a lot of kids, inadequate facilities. But for those of us who have children... Even if we're doing the right thing that we can at home, we send our children out into this world of many foods that might be offenders if a child has allergies. So you send your son to school. You're dealing with the Chicago public school system. How did you get them to evaluate the kinds of foods they were serving? I think I was lucky, you know, at the time. I hate to put it on that, but I came to the food conversation at a time where Public schools were just becoming aware of the impact of sugar, particularly pop, on the diet of children. And then there was a huge conversation around childhood obesity. And so at that point, no school district wanted to look like they were harming the health of children. And so there were all of these conversations that were just kind of starting up around, well, how do we create a healthy food environment for children? And not even that broad of a statement, but how do we get pop out of the schools? Or how do we get vending machines out of the school? And what does it mean for our schools to, to have healthier food available for kids? One of the early conversations that I began to have was, you know, well, why is it this way? You know, how did it get to be this way? And you named some of the constraints, some of them are financial, some of them are public policy. But really what it was was a system that was so dense with public policy, financial agreements and arrangements that nobody really knew why it was the way that it was, but they just know it had been that way for so long that it was acceptable, an acceptable way to do business. 
And once we began to ask the questions around vending machines and getting vending machines out of schools, then we began to um, begin conversations with principals who had control over the schools and particularly the school lunch program. So the school that my son went to was called Nettlehorse, and the, the, the principal at that time was really very excited to have parental influence. In fact, it's one of the schools that are, is looked upon as a, a school that understands how parents can influence the school and actually turn the school around. And I told her about my son's food allergies, and of course lots of children were coming to school with allergies at that point. We were seeing folks who had families who were allergic to peanuts and, and things like that. So we already had these peanut bans and things. Um, but uh, my question was, well, how do we get them to eat healthier food? And uh, we launched this program called the Cool Food Salad Bar Project, which I guess is the predecessor to these salad bar projects that First Lady Obama is publicizing and supporting. And, and that's how we began, <laughs> basically. They didn't want to look bad. They didn't want anyone to say anything wrong, that they were doing something wrong or something to hurt the health of children. And that's interesting. You know, I, I wanted to ask you about the vending machines because I remember – you know, I think most parents have had experiences with the food system in schools. And the schools that I dealt with personally were very reluctant to give up those vending machines because they were attached to money. Not a whole lot of money, but enough money that it made a difference in their funding programs that they didn't want to have to cut. So I'm sure that you dealt with those same kinds of issues. How did you overcome that loss of funding then? Well, I think we had to really, uh, the school districts had to really point out to the schools that the funding that they were really putting in jeopardy was some of the, the funding from the free lunch program, the, the free and reduced lunch programs, because at this point the federal government was stepping in to say, you have to have these wellness programs, and if you don't have them, we're not going to support your lunch program. And so um, the, it was really a, a pressure from the top down a financial pressure to say, you know, we got to get rid of these. It's just not not going to work. And and no one wanted to be on the side of saying, I want my child to have pop. And that was the thing that we had working for us. This was pop. Most most folks didn't think that pop was healthy for anyone. Um, but the real challenge became, well, what do you put in the vending machine? Because nobody wanted to get rid of the vending machines, as you're saying. So then there was this whole thing around, let's put juice in it. It's like, well, juice has got just as much sugar in it as pop. So now we've got a nutritional education piece kind of going. Well, why don't we put fruit in it? There was a, so there was a really large conversation with vending machine uh, companies to find out what kind of products they had that would now be able to go into these vending machines that fit these wellness guidelines. So the vending machines didn't go, but the products in them changed. That is a tremendous feat, LaDonna, absolutely tremendous. And I hope that there will be, is there information posted somewhere like how we made the changes at this school that other parents can read? Um, I believe so. Um, there is a, an organization in Chicago, the Healthy Schools Campaign. Okay. was a, an organization that I worked a lot with during that period of time, as well as Nettlehorse Elementary School, which um, also has a website and talks about parental involvement and engagement. So Can you spell that for me? Nettlehorse, N-E-T-T-L-E-H-O-R-S-T. Okay. Now you've got this 
brand new position. You've gone from Chicago now to Minneapolis, and you're working on the connections between food, justice, and health. And we know that when there are problems with the food system, there are disparities in health. What have you seen? Oh, I've seen, you know, more of the same. Basically, we're, we're seeing the, the prolonged impact of uh, a food system, as I said, that have, has just really kind of gone astray. And so what we know now is that we have to really begin to create a big enough tent so that we start to talk across sectors. We can no longer afford to just stay isolated and have one-off solutions um, and, and very cute projects and programs and things like that. We have to begin to come together and organize ourselves as a movement to really make the kind of broad changes in terms of going to scale. A lot of times we speak of going to scale as a, a business term or um, or something like that. But we really have to think about going to scale in a public policy way. Um, when you mentioned uh, Chicago public schools and the work that we did in Chicago, Chicago is just sort of like an in, that would have been an interim target. We really have to begin to target the U.S. Department of Education and the USDA and get those the fair, just, and healthy food policies kind of inserted in the vision of the USDA, if you will, so that when when we want to change things and improve things for the lives of children, that we're not fighting a battle upstream. So I'm seeing more and more that that's a strategy that we have to employ. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with LaDonna Redmond. She is a senior program associate for food and justice at the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. LaDonna, I wanted to ask you what you saw as the biggest challenges and injustices within the food system, I suppose. We, we talked a little bit about poverty being the injustice. But within the food system, would there be certain areas that you would like to target right away? You know, I, it's hard to pick, you know, one area because our, our food system as we discuss it is, is mammoth and it sometimes is very visible to us in, in terms of our restaurants and supermarkets or lack thereof or if you're driving in the countryside, you, you know, you see corn and soy. Um, but then there's the invisible hand of the food system where somehow whenever we go to the supermarket and reach for our, you know, 2% organic milk, it's there. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's hard to pick a piece of it and say this is the most unjust part of it. But what I like to really kind of point to is this issue of access that is a thread throughout the entire food system from seed to savor. So we've we've talked about access issues for farmers who are struggling to stay farmers on their land, land they may have had for generations to farm workers who are trying to get better wages and have better health outcomes for themselves and their families. And, and then, of course, there's access issues around the workers who are in supermarkets and meatpacking facilities, being able to be treated fairly and being able to have a just and, and healthy work environment. And then, of course, the access issues that I've worked on mostly around access to healthy food at the community level and at the retail level. And, and throughout the food system, access to the issues around ownership, being the right to feed oneself, the right to grow your food if you want to, the right to connect to a farmer if you want to, the right to that farmer to be able to 
access the marketplace in a way that allows them to get the best price for their product and for their work. So for me, the issue would be the issue of access and, and its different definitions. I think you've hit a really big nail on the head. That truly is the common thread through all. Well, the farm bill is coming up, and there's been a lot of work and a lot of thinking about the 2012 farm bill. What specifically in that piece of legislation do you think you would like listeners, including myself, to be working on to make the food system more just? I think it's a combination, you know, of things. There's the the attention, of course, that SNAP benefits are getting, you know, formally known as food stamps to make sure that we advocate for that program to stay intact and well-funded for those of us who don't have adequate resources to feed themselves because of unemployment or other issues. We have to make sure that that those folks are well taken care of, particularly the children um, in our our system. But I think we also have to begin uh, as a country to look beyond our farm bill. We can't can't really continue to have a conversation about food policy that only rests on, you know, one sector of the um, of the food system, and that's farming. We we have to have a broader food bill, if you will, or food policy that really embraces the entirety of the food system, from like I said, from seed to savor. And we have to um, begin to ask our legislators to cre- create this vision with us, because they do have some responsibility, I think, to protect the citizens of the United States around the food system. But we also have the responsibility to now become more involved in creating a fair, just, and healthy food system. You know, I'm often asked, without fail, when I talk about this topic, there's always somebody in the audience who says, yes, good food is great, but, you know, it costs so much more. And the way I like to respond to that comment is, why are we not able to afford good food? And that really gets to your statement about looking at the broader issues. You know, looking beyond the farm bill, I think, is a really good strategy. What is preventing people from eating well? Well, you, you hit it. Uh, it's the We talked about the issue of access. Mm-hmm. And some of the issue is just simply not being able to have it handy, uh, having to go through, you know, hell and high water to get that organic tomato or to get that salad or or if you don't want to continue to eat meat, to get, you know, substitute uh, meat products but other kinds of protein-based products. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one issue. But for me, the... The biggest issue with affordable food or, or trying to make food cheap or something like that is the idea that, that food is one of those things that should be cheap. It comes back to this issue of, of poverty and people um, really being able to make enough money to take care of themselves. Why are we interested in cheap food? We, we don't look for cheap cars. We don't necessarily like cheap clothes. <laughs> we, you know, when you go out someplace nice, you don't necessarily say, well, honey, let's go to the cheapest <laughs> place we can find. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's right. the antithesis of everything that we always do. But when we look to food, we say, okay, I want to get the cheapest food I can find. <laughs> and so we have to elevate this conversation around food and, and stop ourselves from cheating ourselves out of what's, the, what's best for us and just saying, I just want to get some cheap food. And we, we want to get food that's healthy for us. And and that's going to mean looking at our food just like we look at the value of a house. You know, what can I get for the value of my money? (laughs) You know, I'm not going to get the cheapest house around. I'm going to get a good house that's going to be suitable for me. It's an investment in my family. It's an investment over a lifetime. 
And we have to look at food like that as well. I talk to kids about this all the time. You don't go and buy the cheapest gas. You can, well, nowadays you might go buy the cheapest yeah. gas. You can find, but you you don't go and buy bad gas. Right. If you know, well, this place might not have the best gas. I, I, I've had bad results. You don't go there. And, and I asked them why. And they said, well, it'll mess up the car, mess up the engine. It won't run right. I'm like, well, if you look at food as gas and you put bad gas in your body, bad food in your body, what happens over a period of time? I'm like, oh, you know, I might get sick, uh, you know. Like, I'm like, it's the same analogy. We've got to start looking at best and better in terms of our food access and food choices and stop looking for cheap. I think that's a great approach, especially to use with children. How old is your son now? He will be 13 in a couple of weeks. So he is now getting into the age where there's a lot of peer pressure as a teenager. Do you see injustices with regard to children of that age with regard to the food system? Do I see injustices? Yeah, I have a personal interest in the media that is targeted to youth, and I see that as an injustice too. Mm-hmm. And right around, you know, in that preteen age, well, even before, children are targeted to want foods that are, they kind of fall into that junk, kind of cheap gas category. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you deal with that. I I see that as an injustice because I think children are unfairly targeted. And I think that because low-income children typically spend more time with television, with media, Mm -hmm. that they are unfairly targeted. And I wonder if you look at that also in the big picture of injustice. I have looked at that. You know, my son is probably not the best example because he's saturated with the healthy food idea. Right. <laughs> you know, he's he's a he's a bit of a odd bird when it comes to food and being a teenager. But one of the things that I think we have to understand is that food carries culture, mm. and that so much of our youth culture has been defined in the past around you know being able to eat fast food and. And then as you get an adult, you kind of grow out of it, mm-hmm. and uh, and you, you learn to eat better. And our youth culture still very much encourages folks not just to, to eat bad food, uh, I shouldn't say bad food, but not healthy food, but it also encourages that inactivity, which the two together are what really creates the, the problem, is that you know kids aren't as physically active as they used to be mm-hmm. um, because of, video games and things like that. And so there's this less of this active opportunity to get out and, and be productive and, and run around in the sunshine. And then, of course, you stack on top of that, you know, all of the other interesting products that kids are targeted. So I sort of look at it as a part of that global piece that we talked about earlier. It's it's not just the marketing. It's, it's also what comes along with it. It's the lifestyle of inactivity that they are being pushed toward, which is not something that I experienced as a a young person. Right, right. You know, we just have a few minutes left, and there is a topic that I'd like for you to talk about because there's been some discussion on some of the the food system listservs, and it's about the term food desert as a way to describe communities, low-income communities, that do not have access to the high-quality, good, nourishing foods we talked about. And you personally have expressed a, a dislike for that term, and I would love for you to just talk a little bit about why you don't like the term and how can we together come together as a community and talk about the issue of lack of access in a smarter way. 
Well, I think when we use the term food desert, and you know, and, and to say that I don't like it is probably a mild term. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I, I do not agree with the, the usage of, of the term of food desert. And, and, I, and I have a lot of reasons, but I'll, I'll try to just name a couple of them. One is that the, the word desert is a, is really describes an ecosystem, and it doesn't describe lack. And so the two words together to describe lack of food really for me is, is oxymoronic and, and does a great disservice to those people who are desert people and, and live off the desert and thrive on the food in the desert. So I, I have a problem with that. I also have an issue with the research and how that research was um, put together, and I'm talking about the initial food desert study that really started this whole wave of usage of the term. And it really is the antithesis of what we've been talking about, which is community-controlled food systems, food systems that speak to the needs of the community. And the research itself was done pretty much in isolation without community, without community input or feedback or, or even the feedback of the public health community. So I find it, you know, problematic that it's in such widespread use. The, the, the third piece of that is that the solution that the food desert study brings to the table is one that suggests that only supermarkets are the solution to the issue of the food desert. And again, that's inaccurate because we all know that the corporations have not solved any problem that they set out to solve. In fact, they've created more problems. So in a city like the city of Chicago, what we have as a result of food desert research is the <laughs> infiltration of these quote unquote food desert communities by stores that look like, say, that are called super value or save a lot or Stores that sell no frill, off-brand food, food stuff. Many people have have uh, labeled it as such, and that is what's supposed to solve our food desert issue. But we've already said that the food system is broken, so it's not just a food a, an issue of access to food. It's an issue of access to ownership. It's an issue of access to jobs. It's an issue of of fair wages and fair treatment, and so. The supermarket solution, while it can be a part of a solution, it's not the entire solution. Also in Chicago, what we have now is uh, 23 Walmart mini urban markets slated to be built in the uh, so-called food deserts. That's the answer that uh, President Obama and First Lady Obama have come up with to partner with Walmart to make sure that uh, healthier products are readily available and just uh, at, at the same prices that non-organic products are in the store as well as help them build these mini markets in these underserved communities. And as we know, when Walmart comes into the community, other uh, independent grocers and other independent stores fade away quickly because they undercut in the economics of the community. Let's well, just the term food desert doesn't empower community. It takes away power from the community. I think that is a, a wonderful note to end on. Unfortunately, we're out of time, and I want to encourage our listeners to go to the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy and follow your work on food injustice because I can see that many changes and lots of thoughts will be shared as a result of your joining the program. We have been speaking with LaDonna Redmond. She is the Senior Program Associate for Food Injustice 
at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy based in Minneapolis. I want to thank our listeners. I want to thank LaDonna. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you for your work, LaDonna. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 